0: I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source with the story Master, George Saunders. He's universally revered as the nicest guy in the writing game, but it's sweeter and deeper than that. We met in the Boston Public Library the other day to gab about his spooky, transcendental first novel about Abraham Lincoln in a sort of limbo with the son, Willie, who died in the White House. And immediately, I was reminded of what Maxim Gorky noticed about Anton Chekhov. a Saunders idol. In Anton Chekhov's presence, Gorky said, everyone involuntarily felt in himself a desire to be simpler, more truthful, more oneself. And so it went for us with George Saunders. He's famous for writing, stay open forever, so open it hurts. And he talks that way about everything, about his and his wife's version of Tibetan Buddhism, for example about his very complicated feelings inside Trump campaign rallies, about the notion that he teaches that if death is in the room, as it is throughout his new novel, the writing and the reading get pretty interesting. The book in question is titled, Lincoln in the Bardo, using the Tibetan word for a mysterious space underground for lost souls after death, but not quite dead. He gave me the feeling that it's a zone we might all get to know better. We love this book, Lincoln and the Pardo, but it immediately reminded of a scene in Ralph Waldo Emerson's life. Uh, He was barely 30. His first beloved wife, much younger than he, had died a year or two into their marriage, and he went to her grave in Roxbury, and he opened not only the vault but the coffin and beheld it as your Lincoln holds the body of his son, Willie, in, in, in wherever it was, and I thought, for one thing, it, apparently it was not that uncommon in the middle of the 19th century among the greats, Yes, but I thought, wow, that's where George Saunders is taking us, and my immediate thought was, why don't we go there more often? What are we missing? What did
1: Lincoln find? What did you find? In that space. Yeah. I think they were in a more high-functioning relation to death, actually, you know, Mm. and with the idea that if I love you and you die, Mm. that love is sort of co-located in spirit and body and the whole whole package, you know. Mm. The book took me to the place where really what happened, honestly, I mean, just to be a little technical is with that idea in mind, trying to honor the emotional power of that, whatever it might be, the book took me in a lot of weird technical directions first. And for me, the moral, ethical dimension of fiction and all that stuff is an after effect of a high level of technical engagement. So in other words, your eye is over here on the technical stuff, and that actually has the effect of letting your subconscious kind of rise. Whereas if I'm looking at something like theme or, you know, moral concerns— those qualities almost are shy and they say don't look at me directly you know so for me it was a a series of technical problems but in the end honestly I think that it's you've got love versus death so we seem to be born to love we do it very naturally but you have that sneaky suspicion that everything you love is is conditional Mm. what do you do with that is there a way to live functionally and in this book a little bit you sort of see Lincoln kind of you know as he would say disenthralling himself and trying to trying to get past it. But for me, the, most of it was technical mm-hmm. fun and trying to solve problems. Then noticing, oh God, that's really sad or that's really strange, this thing that mm-hmm. resulted from the technical engagement.
0: I do want to hear more about mm-hmm. just the space itself, what Lincoln was looking for, what the, what the wanderers in that zone were expecting feeling, all of them different. Right. But also why
1: it's so foreign to our culture now to go there. Yeah, what interests me in the first place was, okay, why would you do that? that I could sort of understand. But then why do you stop? Because in the newspapers, it said he'd done it on several occasions. I mean, it was a little morbid in a way, but you go in to get something from this interaction. Mm -hmm. You maybe get it, maybe you don't. At some point, you don't. And you say, I'm not doing that anymore. So that when I first thought of this book, Mm -hmm. that was the emotional thing for me. And then in in the process of trying to execute that technically, it became clear that we were going to have to have some ghosts because there was nobody else there to narrate. <laughs> and that was an exciting day when, you know, suddenly this kind of treasure chest was opened. So not only was it going to be one dead person, but it's going to be a sub-community of dead people who, for some reason, were stranded and couldn't go on. Hmm. Then you get into some interesting stuff. Why, you know, why can't they go on? What do they want? What might liberate them? And so on. But what was the reality that he
0: wanted to, to touch there between life and death or afterlife, a vision perhaps of the future. You know, Robert Richardson, wonderful biography of Emerson begins with that scene in the crypt. And he thought Emerson, A, he wanted to experience everything. B, he wanted to somehow affirm his love and life in the reality of ongoing life in the death of that person and behold it, but also to affirm
1: something of the soul that affirmed the life. Well, you know, in, in Tibetan traditions, and we, my wife and I are, are students of, they bury their dead in a, a charnel ground. In other words, some, the beloved dies, mm. you take them up on the inside, you hack them apart with a hatchet, and you throw the parts on a hill, and you the vultures come. And it's considered that that's actually the best meditative space, is to go up and sit there among the, the yeah. body parts. So you could imagine that if you could come face-to-face with that, especially in someone you loved, mm. it would be probably traumatic but also there it is you know there's the truth of it so the book made me think that the squeamishness around death is understandable but it's a form of denial and whatever this is this life that's part of it it's a party we're all going to have to leave that was sort of a an interesting thing to go in there every day and go okay for once in my life I don't have to avoid the pressing metaphysical issues but I actually have to sit there with it for four or five hours you know I kind of uh, riffed on Tibetan traditions in this book. Bardo is in the title, which is a Tibetan term, but my Bardo is not, say, the Bardo in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I I felt like I had to dramatize and, and goof a little bit. But within that tradition, I found this very useful, the idea that if something happens to us after death, which that tradition and many others says that there will, it probably is not unrelated from what's happening right now in our thought streams. And in the Tibetan traditions, they say it just gets supersized. It, your mind with body is like a fantastically powerful horse tethered to a pole. The moment of death, the tether gets cut. It says in some of the texts, if you imagine being in China, you'll be in China. Mm. If you have a negative turn of mind, that will be writ large. If you have a loving turn of mind, that will be writ large. If you have a tradition, you're Christian, you're going to see Christian iconography writ large. Mm. So that's both wonderful and and terrifying. And I think it actually is understood to have to do with the micro motions of the mind that we might not even be 100% aware of. It's a wonderful thing to think about spiritually, but artistically it gave you a lot of rope too. Everything reminds me
0: of the uh, Dostoevsky's inscription at the start of the Brothers Karamazov, the, of the Gospel, the sheaf of wheat that falls to the ground. And it's not about death, it's about new life. Yeah. The story of our world is really not so much ashes to ashes as life to life. Right. And even with the, the vultures carrying off the body of the beloved, it's instantly
1: life in that vulture right. Right. flying over the earth. The only pisser is when you're the one whose arm is being carried off and you're very <laughs> fond of yourself, then you get that kind you're of You're just view. watching from 1,000 yeah. Yeah. feet up. That's right.
0: Then. You said in an absolutely marvelous conversation with Joel Lovell in the New York Times Magazine some years ago, that you'd had a near death or felt like near death experience on a flight. And something was awful happening to that plane. And you had no idea what. But the boy next to you thought for sure it was the end. But of course you landed. It turned out to be geese hitting the aircraft or something. But there was a tremendously heightened awareness coming out of it. Reconstruct
1: that. Is it connected? I didn't think so until the last couple of days. Really, the geese actually took the engine out. It actually went out, and the plane dropped catastrophically. And it was, I think what I took from it was that I wasn't as ready as I thought. You know, I'd always imagined I'd be that cool guy in the plane who's like, "Everybody, let's pray. We'll all sing <laughs> Kumbaya and be grateful for the wonderful life." I joke about it now, and it's become a bit of a shtick item. But in truth, at the mm-hmm. moment, I literally couldn't remember my own name. Uh, mm-hmm. The body was taken over. You know, I mean, one thing I took away from that is I thought I was a pretty good spiritual guy before that, pretty in control of my own phenomenon. I wasn't. You know, the idea that if in the Eastern traditions and this goes back to the how do we relate to death. In the Eastern traditions it says one of the reasons you're so scared of death is because you got it wrong about who you are. We come out of the womb thinking we're permanent and we're central. The world is this beautiful. Exceptional. Yeah exceptional (laughs) exceptionalism, yeah. The world is putting on the show for you. And all those people are dying, and they're sick, and they're you know, the traditions will say that one of the things that spiritual practice does for you is it just shrinks the self, so that when you have to say goodbye to it, it's not so terrible. But what that thing on the plane taught me was my self was very, very, very solid. And uh, then not long after that, I read a text, and it's like, yeah, you know, it takes several lifetimes, maybe many, many lifetimes, Mm. to get yourself down to a reasonable size. It's not something that in like in a new age thing where you can just click your fingers and suddenly be all right, you know. It
0: connects you with one of your, dare I say, chronic words, open and openness. And you came out of that plane scare thinking about an openness that comes with proximity to death. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think what it means is it's just your BS has been switched off by reality. And what I found from that experience was mm-hmm. it doesn't stay switched off very long. You know, just as when someone you love dies, you have that couple days of just. I guess you could call it clarity, but that's almost to make it seem nicer than it is, that raw feeling that, oh, geez, this is the situation. And I I suppose Mm. for Darwinian reasons, that can't exist very long, except I sometimes wonder if these beings throughout history that were particularly Mm. enlightened, maybe that's the state they were in all the time. And maybe they were even Mm. able to pass over into a place of feeling joyful about that, not feeling freaked out about it, you know. But for me, a couple of days is amazing. And then you can just feel, you know, you feel your old defenses coming back up. And once again, you're checking your email and <laughs> bragging about your whatever. <laughs> There's a story of yours, the branded megaphone, about a trip to Dubai.
0: And it ends on the same note. Stay open forever. So open it hurts. And then open up some more. Until the day you die.
1: World without end. Amen. But, but I should say in the piece I'm self-mocking a little bit. I, best, I see that on the internet all the time. Like I didn't I believe it, but I can't do it. But this was after a blissful trip where the magazine spent tens of thousands of dollars for me to go to all these great hotels, and I had this beautiful, you know, non writing experience you dream of, which is you go in with a certain set of ideas and they all get upended. So on the way home, I just thought, oh, what a great state to be in, this state mm. where I've got to write this piece, and I don't know the first thing about the place I just visited. I've been so lovably confused. Then I said, I mean, in the piece I say kind of mockingly I say that, but not exactly mockingly. I believe it, mocking. But co- the mocking I've never come close to actually being in that state, but I, I aspire to it.
0: Well, don't we all? I mean, I, that's what I'd love you to, to teach us a little bit. I mean, how you get there, how you keep coming back toward it, and we do all aspire to it, yeah. I surely do. Yeah. Most of us don't, well, a lot of us deny that we aspire to it, but it seems to me something missing in our culture. And maybe we're noticing it a little bit more in the Trump era. Yeah,
1: yeah. As a career mansplainer, I have a bunch of answers, but I also have been fortunate in my life to meet true spiritual practitioners. Mm. Yeah, always have to be careful with this kind of advice because I can guarantee you that I'm a screw up in that area, you know. So I'm a little bit like someone who knows enough to point it out, but then I see myself constantly not. I mean, you know, in this Trump era, what I notice is, I think you're right about this, it's more important and it's also maybe more evident where we're not being open. I find myself, you know, in this constant news spiral where every 20 minutes there's a new outrage, maybe a little more aware of how much I cling to my own certainty and my own correctness, you know? (laughs) So if you can say, statement A, that's my mantra and I'm sticking to it. And then you, you interpret the world through that mantra, and it's very pleasing, very comfortable. Well, these times aren't really allowing that very much. So then we are apparently like people ice skating on a cruise ship, you know. Mm. I think we're going to have to get used to that a little bit. And to my mind, that kind of instability, systemic instability, you go one of two ways. You either lean into the eternal verities that in our generation, we haven't really had to worry about much because things have been good. Or you reject the eternal verities and kind of resort to mild savagery. So the eternal verities say, well, it says, love thy neighbor. It says, be kind. It says, stand up for what you believe in, but peacefully. Be articulate, be specific. All all those things that we learned as kids. The other set of virtues says, you know, rip a new one in your enemy, because he's a demon personified. Mm. That one, I don't think it works. You know, we know that it doesn't work. So the first one works. Now. Maybe for the first time in my life, I feel like I have to enact those virtues in an incredibly difficult situation. You know, like what the, the Twain say, an untested virtue is not a virtue. Somebody said that, I don't know. <laughs> you know, so now I feel anyway, that, and I, a lot of my students and young artists I'm talking to feel like, yeah, I, I'm all for kindness and empathy, but those people, and that can't be right. There has to be some f- muscular, stout form of empathy that's not separate from resistance, maybe. No,
0: exactly. The mood of the times, it seems to me, is unbelievably contradictory. It's lonely, it's despairing, we feel irrelevant, we feel utterly confused. At the same time, there's an excitement in the air, mm. there's a restlessness, there's an affirmation, even of, as you were saying, the pleasures, the advantages, the gifts we've been we've become accustomed to. It's odd. I, I think of Emerson, he has this marvelous line about coming across the village or something, and he sees a puddle or whatnot, but he, he's suddenly ecstatic, and he's, he says, glad to the point of fear.
1: We're well, afraid oh, now to the logic. point of
0: gladness. Holy mackerel, we could reconstruct this yeah. country in the next 10 years, yes. and maybe not without this awful
1: nightmare in front of us. From both sides, were reacting to the same base condition, which was basically, if you imagine America spread out on a hillside, all the oxygen went up. The money, you know, it all went up to the peak. Mm. So all of us on the middle, lower middle, lower side of that hill are in this anaerobic condition, <laughs> which makes you panicky. The tragedy of the moment, I think, is that, you know, the Trump movement rushed in with its baggage full of self-interest and xenophobia, whatever you want to call it. Mm. I did some reporting with the yeah, we want Yeah, I want to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, and wonderful people. Some of them. Now, this is the tricky part. Not all of them were feeling the economic pinch. That's a, That was sort of an urban myth that went around. But nevertheless, there's something weird in the country especially from my travels when you get out in the midwest mm. th- there are cities they remind me so much of the contrast between bedford falls and uh pottersville you know the towns that i lived in when i was young that were kind of beautiful and rough but beautiful and kind of bounteous in their own way mm. and you go back there and it's really strange and i think what happened was in the absence of that money uh, in the anaerobic condition a kind of weird materialism took over Hmm. so the heroes in those places are not the heroes that we might have had as kids the sense of possibility isn't there there's a kind of shrillness i think and and you look around these towns i was driving through north texas kind of the places where the last picture show was filmed you know and the downtowns are gutted and along the freeway almost like a like parasites are all these national chain stores so you think okay so of course you, you pull into the whatever The burger place. Where does that money go? Well, I think it goes somewhere else. I understand the the concern. The tragedy, to me, is that I think somebody like Bernie Sanders, who I saw several times, he got it. He had it just right, and he had the loving spirit that could have converted this energy into what you're suggesting now might be 10 years away. And I think you're right about that. Mm. But unfortunately, we have a detour now. You know, but what makes it so rhetorically or so intellectually complicated is that the root causes. Actually, thinkers of all sides agreed on that, this anaerobic thing where the money went up. And I don't think anyone's still doing anything to talk about that or to address that, unless it's world revolution and all the money gets invalidated. (laughs) Of course,
0: we read that New Yorker piece of yours sort of plunging into the tank of all those incredible variety of people. I guess the remarkable thing for me was the ambiguity of and the the ambivalence of your own response to such an incredible variety of shouters and Thoughtful folk and lost folk and... Yeah. I mean, could
1: you have predicted the Trump victory from all of that or not? No, except my body. When I came back, I was so anxious. Mm. And I I was obsessively finding stuff online that would prove to me that Hillary was going to win. I mean, in retrospect, I can see that the... Energy and the crowds was unbelievable. Mm. There was just a commitment that wasn't really evident on the left. Mm. I mean, but again, that's anecdotal. The thing about that piece, I had a really hard time with it. I got rejected twice by my friends at the New Yorker, and rightly so. Those are really? kind of my people, the working class people. And because of that, I, I was so afraid to throw somebody under the bus unfairly. There were people who hadn't been interviewed before, mm. and they were trusting me. And I, they would say things. And I'm like, oh boy, I, I could really nail you with that one. And then, I guess the other thing was in my panic about the situation my first thought was I have to have a stand occupy a position prove something and then as I stayed there longer and as I wrote longer I thought wait a minute you're a fiction writer so this the piece should try to be novelistic and I was thinking mm. of our friend Chekhov and the way that he will sometimes mm. beautifully paint two contradictory truths and just let them sit there and talk back and forth And he's got the confidence to then just take his hands off the wheel and say, yeah, thus it is. Whereas a lesser writer wants one to prevail. So in that piece, I just, I tried to say, if it happened, find a place for it. And actually that paid off because at the very end of the piece, it was the last thing I I reported, the liberals were behaving badly and just beating up Trump supporters, kind of singling them out. And and that suddenly, I thought, okay, that has to go in. You can't leave it out. Then once you put it in, the story is saying something you didn't notice before And in this case, what it was saying was, all right, if you thought at the beginning that it's simply Trump supporters, bad, violent, us progressive liberals, holy, that Mm. reality said that's not it. Okay, so human beings are human beings. But also by observation, by physical observation, you can see the energy at his rallies coming out and riling people up. And so for me, that last act was the violence has gotten out even to the culture and it's riling up these people who are being sort of passively, aggressively attacked by his programs. And so, of course, everybody's susceptible. And maybe the thing that I hold most against him is that he introduced that element into the the public sphere in a way that I have in my lifetime it hasn't happened before. George Saunders, I could listen to you forever on the subject of Chekhov, but I just wanted to— That's what my wife says. I listen to you
0: forever. (laughs) (laughs) But Chekhov was, among other things, a pre-revolutionary writer. Hmm. I knew it was there— but I just stumbled on a story that reminded me very much of the present moment. It's a story called A Medical Case, and it's about a doctor who goes to an industrial town. It, it could be Detroit, it could be Lowell, Massachusetts, it could be all sorts of Youngstown. But basically he's been called to, um, and of course Chekhov was a doctor, but he's been called to visit the daughter and treat the daughter of an industrialist, the guy that owns the mill. And basically his diagnosis of the whole scene is that There's only one person in this whole town that's doing well, and it's the tutor, a babysitter. And he comes away thinking, not only something's got to break, something's got to change here, but it it reminds you of these towns today that we read of that are are just dying of opioids, or or war deaths, or insanity, or alcoholism, or or whatnot. I'm not sure there's there's a moment in this story, but this is Chekhov in this town, his doctor, Looking at the buildings and at the barracks where the workers slept, he again thought what he always thought when he saw factories. There may be theatricals for the workers, magic lanterns, factory doctors, various improvements, but even so, the workers he had met that day on his way from the station did not look different in any way from the workers he'd seen back in his childhood. He looked at the factories as a misunderstanding, the cause of which was also obscure and irremediable. And while he did not consider all the improvements in the worker's life superfluous, he saw them as the equivalent of treating an incurable illness. I, I'm not Beautiful. quite at the moment, Beautiful. that I loved. But the point was, he ends up saying, nobody feels good here except the governess. <laughs> and the factory works for her satisfaction. But it just seems so she's only a straw man here. The main one that everything here is done for is the devil. <laughs>
1: sort of an industrial town, Losing its premise. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of one of Chekhov's great writerly qualities is what I call, on the other hand, thinking. <laughs> that is so, so true. That's so beautiful. A complete, you know, takedown of materialism. But I was thinking of that other story, Gooseberries, and the way that oh, he, talk about it. he's got a structural habit of stating a great truth as eloquently as that passage you just read, and then running around the other side of the table and contradicting it or somehow complicating the narrator. And Gooseberries, he makes this beautiful statement this guy has gone to visit his brother, and the brother has finally made himself happy through some kind of nefarious means, and his goal was just to have a little patch of land and some gooseberries that he can grow himself and eat. So the brother sees this guy eating him for the first time, and he looks like a pig. He's just so happy with his own happiness. So later, as he's telling this story, the narrator says that you know, every happy man should have an unhappy man in his closet mm-hmm. with a hammer to remind him by his constant tappings that not everyone is happy. And it's so beautiful and so true. But then Chekhov runs around to the other side, and at the end of the night, nobody likes the story this guy has told. And as he's going to bed, he's sharing a room with a friend, and he leaves his filthy pipe on the table between. Mm. So when I teach that story, I say, he kind of has it both ways. You get the beautiful speech, you believe it, and then Chekhov runs around and says, well, maybe. Do we really want to give up happiness completely? Uh, this thoughtless guy, this stinky pipe guy, is telling us that happiness doesn't matter. But he seemed like kind of a blowhard, you know. (laughs) And then again, for Chekhov, the the beautiful thing is that story never weighs in on either side. It's just, it shows both. And Mm. Chekhov kind of gives you that little sweet smile, and then he walks off, and you're left to, you know. I I always imagine two planks of wood kind of just gently balanced against each other, like in a teepee, and just left to sit there perfectly.
0: That's one of three stories, as I remember, about these guys who go hunting, or they go out to the the farm of the woods just to hang together and tell stories like that, including about love.
1: Baryshnikov made a a show of that. That's an incredible story. Yeah, I recently wrote about this, but I had the chance when I was a grad student to hear my uh, mentor and hero, Tobias Wolff, read. And he was supposed to read his work, but he was ill, so he thought, I'll just read someone else's, and he read that trilogy. And it was, I'll tell you, it was six MFA programs wrapped up in one evening because, Mm -hmm. for example, I never knew Chekhov was funny. I never knew you could modulate so quickly from humor to pathos. It was a master class in the writing, but also in Toby's reading, because he's a, a, an amazing mm. reader.
0: George Hansen, we've got to talk about Lincoln and Lincoln in your book. And there is the underground, but there's the Lincoln above ground in the White House. The Civil War is just getting dire, and you've drawn on so many impressions of this sort of, to me, unknowable character. But he was the handsomest man in the world. He was the homeliest man in the world. He was the kindest man in the world. He was the coldest man in the world. But he was the most alive character in our history, maybe. Walk us into that endless fascination
1: with Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Well, I grew up in Illinois and kind of had it, but not much. And then after I heard the seed story of this book that he had gone into the crypt, I kind of, oh, God, Lincoln, you know, I don't want to do that. That's, uh, you know, that's too hard. <laughs> uh, actually, I kept that attitude throughout. I said, this is not about you, Abe. You stay out here. You're a character in the book. You come on stage when you're needed and get off when you're not so that helped a little bit and then within that space you know I read everything I could get my hands on that he had written especially so I could kind of have some access to his voice but then the thing I had to keep reminding myself that a work of art it's not for any other purpose but that little weird transcendent moment at the end as we talked about with the checkup you don't really know what just happened to you you can't reduce it mm. it seems beneficial but who knows and it's beautiful so When I was researching Lincoln, I thought your job is not to represent him in three dimensions. It's even not to be accurate. I actually don't care about that. Sort of in the Shakespearean spirit. Shakespeare is going to take what he needs to make that dramatic moment. So with Lincoln, I just read as much as I could and I imagine it kind of going into this hopper over my head. And then I stopped thinking about it. And I waited, you know, within the body of the book, Lincoln shows up and then I just would turn my mind towards him and sort of channel that language. I actually didn't care if it felt like him, in the thinking that who who knows who he was? We know who we think he was, but we don't know know who he was. So part of the process was to always be thinking about not Lincoln, but a father, a tall guy with a bad back. He's sitting in some grass. He's just come from point A to point B. It's this tempter outside that minimizes the extent to which you have to, quote-unquote, be Lincoln, it's technical. In the end, what I think is true of him is that his sorrowfulness was a great gift for him, a great source of power. You know, like, and you remember mm-hmm. in the beatniks, they always say it's uh, beatific, but I always heard that it meant beat down. And that <laughs> is an incredibly holy state to be in. If you had your butt kicked a bunch and you don't have any pretenses to stand on, kind of like we talked about earlier, when you're almost dead, or you've just been almost dead, or someone has died, you're beat down. I have a feeling that that's where his late life, blooming of empathy came from, you know, where suddenly he re-understood what slavery was and so on. And I, mm-hmm. I have to believe it has to do not with being great and powerful, because he didn't feel that way, not with winning the war, because mostly he wasn't, not with having good luck, because he definitely wasn't, but from being pushed so far down that suddenly you, you're you beatific. Would you read
0: to us some of those passages about Lincoln? I mean, read you want to read the exaltation
1: of the beaten down? or uh, Yeah, I can, well, I kind of hate to cut to the chase there, but let's see. Uh, Let me read something that comes a little earlier one of the tricks of this book is that Lincoln never actually speaks and the convention of the book is that when a ghost kind of co-occupies a living person the ghost can read the person's mind so I use that as a way of sometimes getting a little side glance into Mm. Lincoln's psychology so in this part if I remember correctly there's a ghost named Hans Volman he was a printer in life and he kind of comically, not to him, but comically to us, he died just before his marriage was supposed to be consummated. So he, in this bardo realm, he manifests naked with a kind of a, an erection, erection about the size of a small dog, I believe. At this place, Volman is occupying Lincoln, and he has access to his thought stream. So in the text, the Lincoln thoughts are in italics, and then Volman is in regular print. So I'll try to indicate that. So Volman and his friend Bevins both kind of settle into Lincoln. They're all three occupying the same physical space. And it says... Um, the gentleman attempted to recall some particular incident involving the boy and hoped this might first time we fitted him for a suit. Thus thought the gentleman. This did the trick. first time we fitted him for a suit, he looked down at the trousers and then up at me amazed as if to say, Father, I'm wearing grown-up pants. Shirtless, barefoot, pale round belly like an old man's. Then the little cuff shirt and buttoning it up. Goodbye, little belly, we are insherting you now. And shirting. I I do not even believe that is a word, Father. I tied the little tie, spun around for a look. We've dressed up a wild savage, looks like, I said. He made the growling face. His hair stuck straight up. His cheeks were red. Racing around that store just previous, he had knocked over a rack of socks. The tailor, complicit, brought out the little jacket with much pomp. Then the shy, boyish smile as I slid the jacket on him say he said don't i look fine father then no thought at all for a while and the three of us just looked about us bare trees black against a dark blue sky little jacket little jacket little jacket this phrase sounded in our head a star flickered off then on same jacket he's wearing back in there now same little jacket but he who is wearing it is I so want it not to be true, broken, pale, broken thing. Why will it not work? What magic word made it work? Who is the keeper of that word? What did it profit him to switch this one off? What a contraption it is, how did it ever run? What spark ran it, grand little machine, set up just so? Receiving the spark, it jumped to life. What put out that spark? What a sin it would be. Who would dare ruin such a marvel? Hence his murder anathema. God forbid I should ever commit such a grievous sin. Then we move into a section where he suddenly goes, Oh, me. You know, I'm conducting this war in which thousands of young boys, a little older than Willie, are, are dying. Thank you for that. Oh, it was such a pleasure. You have a wonderful (laughs) mind, and I'm so so happy to (laughs) talk to you. No, no, I'm just listening. Thank you so much.
0: You know, we began with Emerson. I want to close with a a line from Emerson that I think it's suitable. In his Divinity School Address, he spoke of, we recall with light in the memory, those interviews with souls that made our souls wiser, that spoke what we thought, told us what we know, that gave us leave to be what we inly were.
1: That and describes I, my experience with you exactly. Oh, thank no, you. I was <laughs> say, I, I've never said that to an uh, interview guest before, but thank you. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. This is the fun of touring. Easy, <laughs> you know. Suddenly a spot of brightness arrives. Oh, wow. Well. Thank you.
0: Thanks to George Saunders for Lincoln in the Bardo and this conversation. And thanks to you listening for being part of the open source podcast project. I'm Christopher Leiden.